The scientific revolution starts now. You want my top five? Yes. I don't know if I can get to five. But your top three, two, one. Top, top observations of Southern Oregon? Yes, yes. I got to say, I, I love the right turn lane situation. And I took some time this morning to actually look up the traffic rules for Oregon and their policy on right turn mm. with the red arrow. And to contrast, I also looked up the rules in California, where's, which is where I'm coming from. And in California, if the red arrow is red, you cannot, you cannot make the right turn. But in Oregon, if it's a red arrow, it just means you have to stop before you turn. And then they caveat that with different signs, no turn on red, or, um, you know, don't have to stop, period. Those so, are crazy, yeah. Those are the best ones. And the, the traffic flow is phenomenal on right turns out here in Oregon, and I, I love it. But I don't understand, like, why, why not just have, like, a red light there? Because that's what a red light means. I, you know, because there are certain times when they specifically want right turns to go. Mm. Um, like when sense. the cross traffic lanes doing a left, doing a left pocket, the right turn can turn at the same time and you can clear out that lane. So they want to give you the maximum, uh, number of options, <laughs> which is phenomenal. Yeah. I think New York also has the right turn on red thing. New it's York has no rules. New York's just like, do whatever. We don't, we don't yeah. have time to police just this don't, shit. Just don't hit anyone. It was incredible <laughs> because for I broke my leg during grad school and I got a parking permit in return for coming into lab with, because I couldn't take the subway. I was on crutches. It was winter. Every time you put the crutches down, oh they would just gosh. slip out from under you. It was terrifying. And there's, it's rush hours. So there's just thousands of people who are angry at you for being in the way. And so I was like, okay, I'll come into the lab, but I need a parking permit. And so I drove through Manhattan during rush hour for like three weeks. And it was incredible because it was kind of like a video game. You would find a car, preferably a taxi, and then you would just like follow, follow the car it. all the way through because the taxis are never banged up. They're always insane drivers, smart. but they're never twisted. I've never now, seen city a taxi. Like city drivers in general are really talented drivers, right? Like they, they really know how to bob and weave. But yeah. you get out here in the country and it's like, sometimes you run into people it feels like they've never seen the pavement before. So. Man, when I, when I lived in the city, it was like I had it down and it wasn't until I moved out of the city that when I go back, I realize like how wussy I am now. <laughs> and like, but having a sense of the bike, bicyclists, pedestrians, you know, delivery drivers and predicting everything that's happening and bobbing and weaving in lanes and like positioning yourself to like avoid danger. It's like a whole, you know, you have like a 360 awareness of what's going around, um, around you. And, and, you know, you come out here and people just, I don't even know if they're going to stop sometimes at these, <laughs> these stop sites. Like they're I'd coming absolutely in hot. expect they won't. Yeah. And I'm like, like, yeah, and um, then there's people who drive extremely slow and are going like 20 miles under the speed limit and there's cars just bobbing and weaving back there trying to figure out what to do next. But I'm always guilty of that right before the turn to our house. It's just like yeah. all these people just getting so angry. I had like two honkers yesterday when I was trying to turn into our house. Sorry, I got to turn in this thing. 
I mean, people are in a hurry. It's always the case when we were out in Montana or something, everything's three hours away. And so people just bomb those roads. And it's kind of the same thing out here. Like if you live 40 minutes outside of town. So you got to test out those huge engines somewhere. Yeah. That's true. true. I'm I'm in debt over my head for this engine right now. Yeah, it's kind of incredible because you live out here and you look at all the toys that people have and you kind of take a glance also at the economic situation. And I always wonder what the average load of debt is for a working household out here. Because something like 80% of Americans are in debt. I think the average is $30,000 of credit card debt. I mean, if you consider mortgages, it's pretty much everybody. There's there's very few landed people, right? Okay, so why do I have an inherently noble vision of mortgage debt and an inherently, uh, I want to say problematic vision of like car debt? I think the difference is a home appreciates and a car depreciates. Mm. Mm. So, you know, a home is going to go up in value and you, it's like a savings account. Once you pay the interest, right? Your equity is like a savings. And then you can borrow against your your house as well. Mm. Did you understand Hudson's argument for why mortgages were also piracy? Did he, he was, say that? He was like, yeah, he was like, even if you treat it like the person is renting the house from themselves, if they're paying a mortgage, even if there's like 0% interest and so forth, there's still money changers in the way that are. No, his point was he was like, you shouldn't be able to include the rising cost of the house in GDP. He's like, even if you own the house and you're living on the land, like it's not fair to treat the appreciation of your property as being something that contributes to GDP because it's not a real contribution in the sense of a productive good that has been made. And because real estate always rises, is his point, which Mm. I think is only true as long as populations stay stable or grow, right? Because if the population crashes, real estate doesn't hold. Or or immigration, right? If people want to come here. I'm not saying birth rate. I'm just saying population. Mm, And so if, if your population starts to decline, then all of a sudden home value, it doesn't matter if you're close to the subway or you're living on the beach or whatever. There's just more empty houses than... That's happening in Tokyo. Because their birth rates are so low. There's a lot of country homes or suburb homes that are on the market and nobody's buying them. Mm. Um, so I've seen some foreigners um, in Japan buy them and convert them to more of like a Western style home with like, you know, higher countertops and and just different. Yeah, totally different from uh, the standard out there. But seems like a great opportunity. Um, well, there's places, have you heard about this in Italy? They're selling houses for like $10, $50. <laughs> really? Yeah, you can buy, I mean, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're all sold out, but it's basically all these towns in Italy that have just emptied out. They're just, the county owns the houses and they're trying to like entice people back or something I like that? I think nobody owns. I mean, maybe, maybe the, the state or the, the locality owns it in some way, but it was like, it was somebody's house. They're almost all in kind of some state of disrepair. Villages where the person who lived there died and nobody came to pick it up and the family doesn't care about it. And so then what do you do? The town dies eventually. Like you see this in the U.S. You drive around all these little towns where there's nothing to do. There's no there's no industry. There's no agriculture. And so they, they eventually all have to empty out. Or they become super hip. 
so like the artist communities could move in or something this is kind of happening like ohio is littered with these towns they got beautiful huh. storefronts really old architecture built by well-paid people a long time ago and the bones are really solid but you know the steel mills left or whatever yeah. and so they're kind of ripe for the picking in some sense in some sense but it's like you you live pretty rural and we do too and so you know how uh, maybe just how limited that small space is. There's a couple places that you know to go. There's a couple things happening, but it doesn't have the kind of flow that a big city does. And people that are artists tend to want that flow because that's where ideas come from, right? Cross pollination. You go, you go, listen to but something like, here. Polinus is closer, close enough to the city that they can get that pollination. I assume, like you guys go to the yeah, city definitely. All the time. I mean, how do you, you know the the local population? They were his, you know, and Bolinas was was was. Uh, you know, loggers and fishermen. And, um, and so, you know, when that work started drying up, like logging was probably one of the first things, you know, a lot of people went into fishing and then now, you know, this year they canceled salmon season altogether. So all our fishermen had to look for other, other fish to catch and sell. Um, so it's been a tragedy that on that front, um, not having salmon this year, but um, outside of those kind of industries, there's also farming and, and ranching, but that's not enough um, industry to sustain the whole community, right? So a lot of us out there work remotely or commute to the city or commute, you know, I, I would uh, actually, inland, right? I, I would like predict that a lot of these ring towns like Bolinas and places that are like just outside of the city will be kind of booming in the next 10 years. Oh, because yeah. nobody's going to want to be in these crime-ridden neighborhoods and so forth. Yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that's like, San Francisco is always going to be a hub city. And actually, the prices of homes have gone down in the last couple of years because of the crime and the drugs and all that all that junk. And uh, if you wanted to, it's like, get in now, right? And in 10 years from now, the city will revitalize itself mm. and become the hub again. And there'll be a new, bo uh, a new boom that takes place there. So... There's an opportunity to like get your foot in the door, but I mean, hopefully uh, that happens. It could just become like a crater-shaped city. Yeah, it could be underwater soon too. Clum Actually, the town I grew up in, Columbus, Ohio, total crater-shaped city. Like they built a ring road around it, and the downtown died over the course of my lifetime. Yeah. And it was just, it's just empty, like empty built yeah. office buildings, empty skyscrapers, empty house, like just nothing. Yep. I don't know. I haven't been there in like five years, but it was. It's a crater-shaped city, basically. Yeah, downtown San Francisco, there's uh, so many vacant offices and everyone's asking, like, why do we need these offices? What Are they ever going to be fully occupied again? And so the next question is, of course, well, what can we do differently with these buildings, right? And I think we talked about this the first time I got on is like, how can we revitalize these huge buildings? And so there's been a lot of talk. Well, what, maybe you can have like low low income housing there, right? Um, unfortunately the way that building codes are set up for residential properties, you got to have a certain amount of daylight hmm. in, in bedrooms. Um, and you need ventilation for bathrooms and, um, and there's a lot more. Has never had daylight before. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, but you know, if you take an office floor plan, right. And you want to insert a bunch of residential units in there, there's no easy way to get the the light requirements covered so like that's one step of like the process the second issue is just with all the mechanical electrical plumbing issues like to wire up a new 
house, you got to bring plumbing in. So you're cutting holes in floors mm. to bring pipes out. And so you have all these different um, demands there. Um, typically you have too much, too many elevators in a commercial building. Com you know, there's, you're moving people, more people up and down. Um, so there's over, there's, there's too much elevator. So you can imagine it's a lot of work to convert a commercial space into a viable up to code residential space without doing a lot of changes. Uh, another and who do those big, costs fall on too is the question, I guess. The, it's like the developer, right? Right. And so the other big one is you got to have windows that can open. Right? How do you open a you know commercial buildings? No way. You know they don't let you open the they don't let you open the window. That's interesting. Yeah. So you you basically have to dismantle the whole building. You got to take the facade off. You have to gut the interior. You have to create new pathways for all your mechanical electrical plumbing chases that that feed into each unit. And oh, this reminds me of something I've been meaning to ask you. Mm -hmm. How long are these things supposed to last for in general? Like a skyscraper. You know. A lot of projects will set, um, like for infrastructure around town, right? Roads and bridges. Usually we look at it like a 30 year de design horizon, but for a building, um, a skyscraper, maybe they're looking at 50 or 70 years, um, for, for the, I mean, structurally, I don't think there's any, as long as you're maintaining a structure, the, the bones, like the steel and the concrete and you're maintaining it. And is you there, can, get, can you know whether you are maintaining it? Like, can you oh, see if it's rusting? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have inspection, um, fireproofing. But like down in those, down in the concrete pillars, isn't that where all the steel frames are and stuff? Yeah, I mean, the foundation, you got to look at it. If you can't see it, yeah, there could be problems that you're not, you're not dealing, uh, dealing with. Did I get um, that right, though, that you said that the lifetime of a bridge is 30 to 50 years? Uh, it depends. Like uh, certain bridges, like the Golden Gate Bridge or Bay Bridge are like, you know, those were designed for 100 years lifespan right um but we've figured out ways to maintain stuff and extend their life and and that's really i think when the the highway act went in um they designed a lot of stuff for 50 years like a lot of the highway bridges were 50-year structures right and so then they come in and they add a lane and they add two lanes and then you got you got three different bridges all side by side one of them's 50 years old one of them's you know, 20 years old and one of them's 10 years old and they're all side by side. How do you, how do you replace the 50 year bridge and keep, you know, six, seven lanes of traffic moving? Um, I mean, they right? just took down one, right? They, they built a completely new bridge next to it and then put up a new Bay bridge. Yeah. It yeah. And like that's, that's going to have to be the way the, forward. The, the sequencing of how do you, you know, you have to build a temporary structure adjacent to the to the proposed uh, new structure, right? You have to transition traffic onto the this temporary structure, so you can dismantle the old structure and make room for the new structure. Um, and with the Bay Bridge, they were building uh, the bridge decks and and stuff adjacent to it, and they literally slid it into place. Oh, really? From the side, so they built the whole support system, built the deck, and then over a weekend, they dismantle the temporary one you know, get it out of the way and then slide the new one in and, and what do you slide you know, it with cranes, uh, giant rollers and hydraulic, hydraulic rams. And, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in this by any means, but, um, I'm sure you can find a YouTube video on how they do this. <laughs> right. I, I, I love YouTube, YouTube university. Right. I mean, I, um, I, it was dope seeing it go up, just watching the little piece. Every time we'd go down and visit, it'd be like a little further, a little further, a little further. The, the funny thing is, is that that span at least on the Oakland side of the Bay Bridge, um, it was totally unnecessary. 
to to meet the requirements. I mean, there's not a lot. I don't know if there's any real ship traffic on the Oakland side of the Bay Bridge, but Oakland wanted. What's that? Isn't the Port of Oakland literally right there? Yeah, and but it's it's to the south of the bridge, so th- there's no need to bring cargo um, ships around that area. Um, but you know they don't need that sign. You know that big center span, but the city of Oakland wanted to have a signature span that they could point out with pride and say, you know, and as a matter of fact, it's on the, the it was on the Golden State Warriors uh, um, mm. jersey, mm. the the new bridge. Save and the logo. Yeah, it was part of the logo. Um, I'm actually fortunate to know one of the engineers who designed the actual cable of, of oh, that, right. that bridge. And it's a single cable that sort of like rubber bands the whole the whole thing together. And you said he was like the most like high test intellect in, in the firm or something. Uh, you know, there's a lot of PhD uh, bridge guys that I get to work with and um, they're really sharp guys. And, you know, looking at just that bundle of wires, right? It's bun little wires um, bundled into bigger sort of uh, strands and then those all get compressed down into a big, uh, large what's the, diameter. I mean, right? this is probably a stupid question, but what what's the mechanics of that? Like, why use smaller threads as opposed to just one big piece of steel? That's a great question. And I, um, I'm sure there's been some studies done to find what the optimal strand is, but... It might be just uh, redundancy or something. Well, the way I understand, like at least with the Golden Gate Bridge, they had like a support wire between the the towers and and its anchorage, and then they ran a little trolley with a spool, and so they would basically unspool the wires mm. um, and do passes, and then once they did a certain number of wires, they probably bundled them right, um, and then kept going and and just kept spooling wires together. So it might be like um, a and then clamping thing. them clamping them down and then once they had the full bundle then they then they basically wrapped they wrapped the whole bundle together um well you see this in biology too all the time right the the way that the cells are organized the way that the different actin filaments and there's substructure uh, I'm, what am i thinking of i'm thinking of myofibrils and muscle actually so they're called by talking this up but they're organized in a similar way where there's there's concentric windings I wish I could. I don't have a computer with me. I, I mean, I, I think that my instinct is it's a bending thing mm, and a manufacturing thing. Okay, so think about how difficult it would be to put a, an entire single piece of steel that thick right. to hold the bridge. I just transport manufacturing seems really difficult, but it seems easier to manufacture something that's woven and wound. And then if you take. Uh, but even guitar strings are like this. Like most, most load-bearing wires are multi-layer. Yeah, actually, right? a guitar string is a great example of, of what the what the bridge the bridge cables are like because you have a core wire, and then you have a wrap a wrapping going around it. Um, so, yeah, the what's crazy. The other thing too is that once the wire reaches the end of its run, you have to terminate it, right? So, and, and there's an incredible amount of tension in that wire, right? That you're basically converting all that gravity load on a suspension bridge and you're converting it into a tensile load, right? And so the wire is carrying all this tensile load and you need to anchor all that tension into a gravity block, right? What's a gravity block? That sounds It's awesome. just a heavy ass block okay, okay. of concrete and, and, and it's anchored into the ground. You know, it's, it's on a really strong foundation and you anchor each wire 
individually into that block mm. um, to get it into the ground, right? And so um, each wire has to have a termination point. So if you have, you know, thousand wires, and I don't even know how many wires, but I think very, you know, in the hundreds, if not thousands of wires, each one has to, has to anchor itself into into a block and there are deflection limits on far as far as like you know if the, if the the main strands come in um in one place and you have this large area of a block and you need to distribute wires into it right mm -hmm. if those wires deflect too much at the exit point from the main cable then you're going to have a build of stresses and you're going to have a weak a weak point um the other crazy thing about these bridges is that you have to deal with moisture right and rust is like the biggest enemy and then put a bridge over salt water salt water is super corrosive right so um they actually have to have a ventilation system that basically um, a dehumidifying system that sucks all the moisture out of out of the the main cables to keep them dry um you know I, I can't remember um i think there was a bridge maybe it was in italy or somewhere where um that was a factor in its collapse. Um, the cables had rust in them and it's out of sight, out of mind, right? Exactly, yeah. You don't, it's hard to inspect that stuff. That's what worries um, me about to, the interior of the skyscrapers too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there are ways of, of non-destructive testing, right? You can do, um, gosh, I don't even know the names of the stuff, but you can scan the steel and look for mm. dislocations in the in the lattice and you can look for weak, weak points um, without having to, you know, do any destruction to it um you know it's, it strikes me that we have this perception of modern men that we don't really build monuments the way that people used to that's exactly what i was thinking about too i was like but i like a tunnel through some massive rock mountain or a bridge over the bay these right. are all massive monuments that i think people kind of take for granted because there's not a sense of just how much careful engineering and processing goes into it. And I think it's a reflection of how our society has shifted from looking at art as the thing that is the most important thing to engineering as being the most important thing. Because the old cathedrals are engineered to roughly the same... They, they had a design of mm -hmm. what the cathedral looked like and they didn't really iterate that much. What they iterated on was the way that they decorated them. And here, I think it's a little bit different because people iterate on designs. Like this is, it's an engineering these marvel. Like th these aren't big pieces of rock that are going to last 10,000 years is the other thing. Tunnels I think will last for a long time. The tunnels? I think mm. so. No? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. You think... <laughs> uh, well, I wonder too. I mean, if we're building with steel, like how long would steel last? Like, you know, if we, if you left a steel tower un, unattended for... A hundred years, right? Nature would move in, right? You'd have plants growing, you know, animals would maybe start nesting in these towers, you know, glass breaks out and um, the elements are let in. Like, how long would the steel structure last? Like, how long does steel Not very long. Last? Like, wouldn't it rust? Wouldn't it just rust into oblivion? Yeah, because like, I have... How, how long would that take? I imagine a really, really cool art installation where you put in pillars of different materials and you just leave them for hundreds and thousands of years and just see how nature takes them. Well, Fat Talks Ranch is essentially this project. The longest uh, science uh, experiment ever. I think that's right? the tar drop experiment. <laughs> that thing's, they have, oh, the tar drop? Yeah, do you know that one? 
Yeah, I've heard about the tar drop. I also heard about a recent one where um, they had this refrigerator that was keeping the specimens at a certain negative, like super cold temperature. Wait, hold on. What's the tar drop? Okay, well, you can go back to, yeah, let's hear about tar drop. First. Tar drop is just the, it's a, it's an experiment for the viscosity of tar. And so it's this big vessel that has pitch inside of it. And it's been slowly dripping for like 200 years at this point. Why do you need 200 years? Because tar is really viscous. I see. This has got to be the best data on, on that <laughs> yeah. pitch ever devised. What was the no. thing about the fridge? Oh, someone had some specimens um, and they were at a very cold temperature. And what happened was the refrigerator had a fault and it was a sounding an alarm. And one of the um, maintenance or, you know, staff in the, in the, in the research center unplugged it because he's tired of the hearing the alarm and just like unplugged the machine. So it stopped making this alarm and it basically ruined all the specimens. It was a 20 year, there were 20 years, I think, into the experiment and and uh, all that research lost, and you know they said it was a million dollars down the drain, basically. Look, but. if you have a million dollars <laughs> worth of stuff in a freezer, you should probably deal with it when it's alarming. Well, it's a little. It's funny. It makes me think of those people who want to like cryogenically freeze their bodies, like and like the <laughs> freezer. You know, some new maintenance guy comes into the into the <laughs> and unplugs something or presses the wrong button and like thaws out all the specimens. Like, oops. I think Walt Disney's got his head frozen somewhere. Is that true? I think so. Yeah. I don't have a computer here today to <laughs> fact check anything. Where is it? I, want, I wanted to say, like, about the steel thing. We had this dude on the show who was like, consider the different ages, like the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. And he was like, if you look, the time before present for each one of those materials is exactly what you would expect for their decay length, essentially. So he's exactly. like, you don't really know whether someone 10,000 years ago had bronze tools be or because they wouldn't exist anymore. And I don't, I don't know if it's like entirely defensible, but it's an interesting concept. Well, I, I guess the only way to preserve steel for a really long time would be to keep it extremely dry. Right. Right. So, but if, if someone if did people have aren't steel, taking care of them for a hundred years, yeah. what's going to happen? You know, places that we think are really dry now, maybe they were not dry at the time that they were using the steel, right? Uh, climate's changed. Um, anyhow, not really sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, going back to this this idea of like, what would downtown San Francisco look like if it was abandoned and like a hundred years from now, what would it look like? What would still be, maybe some of the concrete would still be up, right? We have concrete, there's steel inside of the concrete and the concrete provides like a, a, a jacket around it, right? And, and it, and it fails when we get excessive cracking, which becomes an entry point for water. Um, and that's when you run into problems. But, but with those huge earthquakes every hundred years or so, it's like, think about, think about the Twin Towers, just a pile of rubble at the bottom, right? Like, I imagine that's like that pile of rubble. Are going to bring just, Twin Towers into this, uh, We could do it. <laughs> you know, like if, um, if my colleagues find this on YouTube and, and find this interview and I say something... I actually, I find it really like comforting to like, just like figure, like, cause the thing is you have to be able to stand behind the things you say, but like, you should just kind of be like that anyways, right? Like, I don't want to say stuff that I wouldn't want people, like, I don't want to say things that I don't really believe in, but if I believe in them, then, and I, 
and it's cool. Like if you don't know something, we can look it up too. But it's like there's nothing to hide about yourself. Like you're an awesome person, and so you know. So if we're gonna get technical, and I that's when I'm like, gotta stay inside my lane. I have a or, or we can look it up too. But the suspension bridge, I'm pretty sure I I know what I'm talking about on that one. Hopefully somebody um, knows at least. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it is an interesting question, though, because I really do wonder, like, what... And, you know, I think History Channel did something, like, where they showed, like, what would cities be look like in the event of the apocalypse, right? Like, there's, like, all fear, and um, they show lions, like, you know, jumping between, like, high-rises and, like, killing shit, you know? Should I start a new um, audio? No way. Please, please. I just stopped. Oh, it's just no, we didn't. You yeah, didn't stop no, no, either. no, nothing stopped. Okay. Um, I just looked it up. By the way, it looks like steel-framed buildings are expected to last a hundred years. Hundred years, which is that's like good. Nothing though. Like think of those Roman buildings where they're you look like at the Empire State Building's been around, right? But will it be in another hundred years? I don't know. Are we? Are we? Um, are we recording? Yeah, no. I didn't. I didn't stop recording. So okay. about the, I wanted to say something though, because it's like there's stuff that. I think is hard to say because it is outside the Overton window. I think there's things that are just not like, especially in a professional context, I totally understand that there's some stuff that you don't want to say because it's, it has, it has consequences reputationally and socially. And it just, we live in a society where you can't say everything that you but want But as long say. as everybody feels that way, then we're kind of screwed as a culture. Like I was actually, I was really scared when we started this that it was going to prevent me from, you know, teaching at a university or something that I was, you know, questioning fundamental dogmas like the Big Bang and shit like that. But the lady who hired me listened to our podcast and she was like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, I think that I think that we should explore all the possible. And I was like, I was fucking shocked, dude. Like, I couldn't believe I got that job. I could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And But it really opened up my mind to just being like, dude, like, just just be real like just be honest you know if you're questioning something it's okay to question things that doesn't mean that it that what you think is right either it's just like i have questions about things yeah well and it's funny you say that because well it's not funny it's it's very true i've worked with a lot of engineers and when we get on the subject of 9-11 um i've had people just outright not question the official story hey you know this is yeah the official report is correct and you know it was these bad terrorist people that that did all this and then i meet engineers who say well um doug i'd love to talk to you about that but it's it, we we can't do it here we got to go you know maybe over a beer after work um they don't even want to open their mouths about it around their colleagues probably for the fear of of the retribution um, or or just being labeled as a as a lunatic right so i'm pretty vocal about it but um, you know, there's two planes, three towers, right? World Trade Center seven is, is so far, I think one of the only steel frame buildings that's, uh, collapsed due to fire. Yeah. Um, there's been no, no other recorded cases and they had some, some, some floors that were, had a prolonged fire. Um, I think the water got shut off and the, the sprinkler system wasn't running. So it was kind of this like low heat slow burning fire that just kept going um and um 
apparently it caused the the building to free fall collapse. So I mean, I think a good place to start with that is just being like, wait a second, we invaded invaded Iraq after this. Okay, yeah. so I'm like, I just want to start there and work backwards and be like, wait a second. Well, yeah, they so a bunch of Saudi terrorists attack our tower, and we remain best buddies with Saudi Arabia, but we attack Iraq. It like it's just. Just start yeah. there. That's 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 absolutely grounded fact. Yeah. You know, it's like I don't know what the hell went down on that day, but it, it it was the pretense for sure for something that made no fucking sense whatsoever. Absolutely, and you know, I I look at this two ways. Is one is yes, maybe there were people who had this plan conceived and orchestrated this thing right with the intention of that. There's also people that just see the opportunity, and they go, hey. Um, this terrible terrorist attack happened and you know all these americans died and and americans are pissed about it we need to do something what can we do and that's when they go oh well hey um you know we don't like we don't like saddam like let's just go take care of saddam and just we'll blame it all on him and then that like checks off a box of list of things to do or objectives that the country has and we want the oil whatever um so well, if it was Hoggle, just that, though, that it would it would maybe be less of a suspicious situation. But there's a lot of bizarre stuff that happened that day. You know, with the uh, the squadrons flying the simulated. Yeah, they're doing a training mission, and they were unarmed. Yeah. Right, they didn't have ordnance on board for the training exercise. The pull the so. building comments from the, the broadcaster guy. Who was that? The, the owner of the tower was on like CNN or something. And there's so many. There's so many alignments that where where certain individuals were like highly benefited, right? The, the the owner took out that insurance poly, policy, like what, you know, that year, like leading up to it. Like what what's the, you know. I just think we have to like, we have to normalize the asking of questions of things that don't make sense. It's like, I don't think like you should be out there prophesizing that this or that necessarily occurred, even when it comes yeah. to stuff like COVID or climate change or all these things. But we have to be able to ask questions. Like we need to be able to be curious and at least discuss like what's going on. If there's a good answer, great. I want to hear it. You know what I'm saying? But I don't think like that. I think it's a scary situation when a society gets to the point that you can't ask questions anymore. That's that's when really gruesome stuff starts to unwind. Yeah, you know, early on, I think in the investigation, FEMA did a report that said they had evidence of explosives, and and they had an early report that explained that, and then. Um, it just didn't get rolled up into the official explanation, right? But FEMA went through the trouble of producing that report and people don't, people don't willingly sit down. I mean, I hate writing reports. <laughs> like, why would I be like, Hey, I'm going to scheme, uh, writing this report and I'm going to totally make everything up because I want, I have an agenda and, and I want to, I want to make my agenda, um, happen. And so I'm going to write, you know. That's a lot of effort, and and the the people who work at FEMA, I don't think they're motivated. You know, so early on, what 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 would their motivation be to like? They're all like we're dissociated fool. bureaucrats, right? Like they're just gonna do their little part or whatever. They're gonna do their they're gonna do their job. They're gonna do their role and in the best manner they know how to do. And you know, they want to keep their bosses happy, but like, why would they make that up, right? Um, I don't know. You know, I don't know maybe either. They, maybe they were told to put that in the report by their supervisor. But anyways, it's weird because you don't know. We're getting to the point though that this was a very real event in our lives. But I feel like kids who are growing up now, like like your kids, or it's just going to be this 
monolithic story of what happened and it's just gonna it's in a history book now and it's just a done deal right we're getting older yeah <laughs> everybody's getting older yeah i talk i you know some of my uh my colleagues i, I talked to them about they're like dude i don't even remember that mm-hmm. like you know i was i was like in kindergarten or something right and you're like what you, you didn't you don't remember 9-11 like oh man that was crazy um I'm kind of like worried that's going to happen with this whole COVID disaster too. Absolutely. We just kind of move years on from now. and forget. And then, you know, the next generation's got to suffer the same disaster. I don't know. I think the hardest part about exercising and being willing to ask questions is if you're willing to accept the answers you get. Mm. And I think the hardest part for me with 9-11 was that after asking all the questions, I came to my own belief that was kind of disturbing uh, for me, and I had to I had to accept I had to accept that I had to accept the possibility that there's a deep corruption, um, and there's there's I had to accept that we're we're being lied to, or I had to accept that our government conceals the truth from us. I had to um, early on accept that you can't trust official narratives right um and that's a hard pill to swallow and i think that prevents a lot of people from acknowledging it's like hey america's the greatest country and i don't want to hear anything that 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 takes you know dis that disputes that fact like america's the best i think they just mean america's a really comfortable country yeah I, I (laughs) (laughs) i think that's what they mean and like i get it for sure. Yeah. I mean, Nastia and I, I remember Nastia being like, if you really think that, how can you possibly do anything with your life except for rage against that machine and try to find a way to, you know, supplant it? I mean, what else could you possibly do? That's kind of always my thing with this. I'm like, if you really do think that the society is broken to the degree that the government is actively lying to you, to the, to the point that 9-11 wasn't what the official narratives say that it was and 2,500 people died for something that wasn't actually the case, how could you do anything except for fight against that with every fiber of your being and give your life to it? Because but, that mean, is what, that, that's what people do when they see a reality that is completely orthogonal to what you're being told. Like, you look at the Soviet Union, and that was what people did, is that they committed themselves to breaking the hold of this toxic ideology. And of course, nothing happens in a vacuum. Because but dude, 2,500 people is nothing compared to the like 40,000, 50,000 people. Was it Pfizer or Merck? One of those big giants killed with the Vioxx scandal. Like killing people is the cost of business to these folks. And if that was going to result in like enormous profits for these financial arms, these, you know, I, I just. Well, that, that's exactly what I'm saying, which is like that, okay. So you have a couple of responsibilities here. The first is to make sure that everything that you say is dead correct. Right, right. That's very, very difficult to do because the facts are scattered. That's true, but things come out over time, right? Like the Merck-Vioxx scandal, that came out over time. There were court cases, they were subpoenaed. When when was the Merck's... I've never heard of this. Okay, so hold on. Let me look up the details so I don't misrepresent it. Um, I mean, basically, Merck knew that Vioxx was killing people. And there was internal emails between them suggesting that this was the case. And the response from the top dogs was, 
fuck it, this is essentially something that even if we get fined for, it's just not a big deal. Yeah. And they killed like a stadium full of people. Wow. And, you know, they're still killing it in the market, right? Like they're still, wow. they're fine. They didn't give a shit at all. When, when, when did this happen? I think it was in the, it was early 2000s, maybe. By 2006, there were 10,000 wow. cases against Merck and 190 class actions. Oh my God. You know, what's crazy is I've never heard about this. Really? And I mean, I had a friend who was it's like, it's not in my, it's not in my, my in area of interest, but I mean, baseball player, I, like I, I was uh, roommates with baseball players in college and there was a couple of them that were on Viox when it came out. Wait, in college? Yeah, because their freaking baseball players are always just like yeah. destroying their shoulders and stuff. The, I, I knew one pitcher, shout out Adam Sellhorse, who uh, was on the Viox in college. So is it a pain med? So what is it's it? Like an, it's basically ibuprofen, but it's uh -huh. a really toxic ibuprofen. It's wow. like some sort of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, if I'm not mistaken. But it's, it turned out to give these cardiac events. So wow. basically, uh, 88,000 people just in the U.S. alone had heart attacks from Vioxx, and 40,000 of them died. So if the so like oh if the gosh. upper if the top brass of a very prominent corporation in America would kill fifty forty thousand people, yeah, what the hell makes you think that somebody else wouldn't kill two thousand five hundred or however many people died on that day? I think it's yeah. It, it in the case of the the medical thing, that's collateral damage like there i don't think there was ever an intent to kill anyone well, no, right? so that wasn't they, the they intention knew, they, they knew, knew that it was causing heart attacks oh so, and oh, they so maintained they, it on the market uh, and so, so that's a little different right because so it's not a case where they want it's premeditated murder where they're like we want to kill these people it's more like you say collateral damage because they know that it's going to damage their ability to market the drug and instead of taking it off the market, opening themselves up to lawsuits, they cover it up because if you can't prove liability... Well, they didn't even take it off the market is the thing. They, they knew they were acting... It's not any different than knocking down a building full of 2,000 people or whatever. Yeah. It's not any different because once you know that there's people dying and you don't do anything about it because you're yeah. making money, how's, it's this exact same thing. I mean, come on. You know, like if you allow somebody to die when you could save them, that's, you're still going to jail for that. Or you should. You, yeah, I think I, you do. I, it's a different, you know, it's different, right? I always wonder, you know, like if you, if you work at Merck and you, you know, you're passionate about creating new medicines or new, new treatments, right? And you're really like, you have a strong belief and passion for the work you're doing. Um, you, you know, like that, that just seems, it seems like a difficult situation to be in. And it, and it's, it's like you have a whole company and, and like colleagues like if, if you're in a leadership and you know you and your colleagues have built up this amazing research team or group you know like a community right there's really a community inside companies of good people there are good there are communities of good people inside these corporations that are well-intentioned and mean to do right and have everything to lose from this stuff so um where where do they go wrong? And 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 it, it and I think it's this self-preservation, right? It's like, well, you know, imagine the first uh, researcher at at the company who's like, "Hey, uh, by the way, I think this is going to increase heart attacks." Like, um, and having the the nerve to come forward if if your whole company goes in on 
or heavily invests in an idea and there's a major flaw with that idea and you basically pull the plug, that might be the end, right? And nobody wants, nobody really wants to pull the plug, right? So they're going to stick with the program and kind of head in the sand, you know, let's keep, let's keep things moving. And, and I think that's the justification. Um, and really we need more brave people to step up and come forward. You know, we need more whistleblowers, um, who I are just convicted. think like a culture of being able to ask questions, right? Like there's, this is something we really struggle with on the show too. It's like how to just talk about things that might not be true, but they might be true, right? How to just, how to, how to very like create a culture where it's okay to be like, yeah, I don't, I actually, I'm kind of thinking maybe there could be cardiac events here and somebody else be like, yeah, maybe there could be. But like not to have somebody just be like, there's cardiac events. We need to shut down the assembly lines, right? It's like there's a there's a very tactful way, I think, to address concerns and a culture of curiosity. And you can't really mix a culture of curiosity with a culture of profits, though. Merck made twenty five billion dollars the year before they pulled it. They were fined in total. So that's a single year of profits off of a drug that they were fined, I think, a couple billion, maybe. And so it's cost benefit analysis, right? So it's a simple, a simple decision for them. Right? It's the same thing with the opioid epidemic, right? Like but, somebody's like, Hey, this is kind of screwed up. And everybody's who's making the decisions about the bottom line and about what the board has to do, what they have to provide to shareholders, their own benefits packages. It just, there's no possible space in which it is kind and gentle, idle, curiosity that allows these things to change it's there's too much entrenchment in too many systems for it to be an option to just politely be like hey you know this might not be a great idea maybe if you were able to come up with a drug that had the same exact effects but didn't have any physical repercussions side effects wise then you could convince them to shift because we've talked about this before too it's like okay so like you know building that, the bay bridge next to the bay bridge well something is screwed up and you know that it's screwed up. And the only way that you're really going to get people to change is you have to find an, a viable alternative that's better than what you're using right now. Because I'm thinking a lot about pesticides. And there's a huge environmentalist campaign to get rid of pesticides, which I totally get because they're super toxic to the environment. I have a feeling that a lot of the population collapses that we see aren't because of global warming or whatever. I think that it's chemical. And I mean, overfishing, obviously, but on top of that, chemical problems. Polluting rivers and streams, yep, affecting, and yeah, so many, so many different. But how can you possibly get rid of pesticides? Like, the entire food supply depends on it. Yeah, Braden made this really interesting point yesterday about how there's this, was it United Nations or some global consortium that was looking at the top threats to civilization in the future? And climate change is only one out of nine. A lot of them were things like this, like ecosystem diversity, um, like clean water. The actually the roads too, I guess, give a ton of pollution from the engine, from the brakes, and from the tires. And there's no and, such thing as a zero emission vehicle. Period. There's always going to be off gassing or brake dust or tire, uh, you know, rubber. Uh, microplastic, you know, all that stuff comes off into the environment. But fixing those issues is just too complicated and expensive when you can just point out one easily remedied solution, or one easily remedied problem. Because, you know, you can build CO2 scrubbers, you can create electric vehicles, like, you could, there's a market for that. 
But there's not a market for fixing brakes and tires and roads and byproducts that aren't even measured from industrial processes. Yeah, so how, if let's say you're interested in coming up with a new way of doing brakes, right? That creates no particulate matter. I mean, you could do this with motors, right? And when you yeah, turn it yeah. into a generator... Aren't Teslas um, like that? Yeah, you have regenerative braking. So that takes some load off of, of brakes, but to stop really fast, um, brakes are I, ideal, superior, right? You can't stop that fast with a, with a motor, um, I would think. Um, so, but how do you market that? Right. What, what's in, what, what make, if you're, if you're interested in this, how do you market that to the public without some sort of incentive? Yeah. And that's where, that's where our government, I think needs to step in and say, Hey, we need to address this. But we have to have a government that's oriented towards something like a higher ideal of what humanity and the ecosystem could look like in the future but that's what's happening and nobody likes it because that's a one world government you and i've talked about this before where it's like okay so you have a thing like brake dust full of heavy metals toxic stuff that you want to get rid of and inherently the only way that you can possibly get rid of it is by getting everybody to agree that there's going to be a new standard and that you implement that standard and you phase out the old standard. That's what California does all the time. And that people get so frustrated by it because it's like, oh man, all the cars you're going to have to buy are electric now. And everybody's like, electric cars don't solve the problem because you have grid issues and you don't have enough renewable energy. And so what you're still doing is you're still burning stuff. And it's just, you're mining cobalt with slaves in in, in Africa. And so there's not, there's not an answer for this that can, that can be agreed upon because people don't want to have to change, number one. And number two, the systems that we want to change to have serious problems because we haven't worked out these things. We're literally trying to fix the machine as we're flying in it because we're, we're just some project. We're on the arrow of time and we are riding it. And the best that we can do is try to, to in- improve the situation, but it requires massive governance to do that. Massive. You said one world government. Maybe that's uh, a symptom, not a um, what? What's the opposite? I don't know. We don't need to. It's not. Yeah. It's like maybe one world government is a symptom of people waking up, and if enough people wake up to the reality of you know where we're headed, right? All the you know again pollution. You brought up pesticides like pollution is a huge threat to us i would say more so than climate change right we can deal with we can deal with a changing climate but we can't take if we can't remove ourselves from a toxic cancer causing environment right like you know where do we have to go like we're, we're polluting everything you know um everything's toxic and we're fleeing one place to the next because of weather weather changes going to more hospitable climates, but only to find out, well, that's all polluted as well. And the water is not safe to drink. I'm not too worried about the one world. (laughs) I used to think the one world government thing was creepy, but uh, I think it was my cousin pointed it out that there's already really strong tensions between local state and federal rights. Yeah. And if you think about a lot of the big policies too, the states kind of do what they want to some extent. And I feel like the local municipalities and, 
like like another like one argument for the world government is how the hell are we going to get off this planet if we don't all get together and work together and build the resources to do that if we want to get off the planet which you know it'd be nice to have i a don't want to i don't want to get off I, lo- yeah. I love our planet I, I don't i i'm down to stay here but we should probably have like a backup hard drive you know yeah <laughs> I just, I, I think that the reason that the one world government is creepy is because this is what happened during COVID, right? With the WHO. With the UN, with the WHO, with all of these moneyed, because int- there's but, money but that, being made yeah. in the implementation of these programs. Like if you think about the military industrial complex, it was an incredibly efficient way to make money because you you poured all of this government subsidy into manufacturing munitions those people would then sell them to other countries make massive profits okay so there's a profit incentive put those countries into debt start little fights in their neighborhood you know it's the story of south america essentially and so okay we know that that happens and then on top of that you have the the moral imperative to support these green policies and you end up in a situation where there is a large accumulation of power that is morally justified that has a financial interest that is not necessarily aligned with the health and well-being of people but that can happen at any level right that's not just because of it's a global it's scale. a resource question your local municipality probably doesn't have the ability to buy a facial recognition system that is able to evaluate on the basis of physiognomy and you know whatever infrared data they can gather if you're about to commit a crime or not like that's expensive that's an expensive system to to train to implement to 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 run and so but your you're, local you're municipality that, might not have that well, but the well, one world Nash, government has that how did you go from there to facial recognition infrared camera systems because well, she's like, saying that's the creepy stuff that's coming but i'm like okay. I, i'm like how do you know that the federal, the big global structure is going to have more money than like california's going to have tons of money but california is as much as california is literally at the vanguard of this of that global structure the technology companies are the force that is driving the creation of the one world government they have the profit motive california is 100 percent sold to that does california have all this facial recognition like are they implementing it or are they outsourcing it to people they or, sorry are they uh, uh what is it exporting it i saw something about this just recently wow i see i i think the moral needle keeps moving though right so right now they have us in this green mode right where they're like we got to reduce our carbon footprint and like that's all you know i think there's there's some good benefits to reducing carbon it means we're going to reduce how much fossil fuels we burn and we know fossil fuels when we burn them they cause toxic you know chemicals byproducts that um are cancer causing right so like that's a win for pollution um but people see it as oh i'm i'm reducing you know my carbon footprint and i'm helping with climate change right right they don't reckon i don't hear people say hey i'm i'm going electric because i want to reduce the cancer causing chemicals byproducts that i'm creating with a combustion vehicle right you don't hear that it's like i'm reducing my carbon footprint right i'm doing this morally good thing um, but you know, so with one world government, I think they're, I think they're opportunists and they, 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 t- you know, the, the powers that be are always looking for opportunity, but they still have to work within, um, within the masses. And if, if the masses can morally align with them, that gives them the power they need to do some of this stuff. But as we shift our moral compass, if we said, you know what, 
I don't care about carbon. I care about this pollution. I care about cleaning the bay. I care about having clean drinking water, you know, with these, all these factories on the East coast that just, you know, North Carolina or something, they dump all these chemicals in, in the river and all the people downstream, like the fracking wells in, in Pennsylvania, where whole communities, um, drinking water is getting tainted by the fracking, uh, you know the dude even the coast out here man it's like really gross you see these rivers empty and then you go upstream a bit and there's some sort of uh, pulp factory or something and it smells so bad out at the coast right where these things empty it's like we've allowed this to happen like and where's our moral compass on that are we gonna say we don't want this stuff anymore but then it comes down to well hey if if i make a stink about it my factory is going to close or I'm going to lose my job or our community, you know, our community is going to fail. So, um, fundamentally, it's, 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 it's difficult. I guess you only have the luxury of your moral compass as far as how, how well you're currently situated. Right. Exactly. Um, and if that, you have that, the bandwidth to like, you know, um, like this is the thing. Okay. So when we talk about crime being bad in places like San Francisco, what is that what does that lead to that leads to a situation where you look at something like facial recognition technology that police departments are actually right now so there was a ban for 3 years in California on facial recognition technology and right now there's a bill that is trying to get passed where they're like look we should allow it to be used but regulated heavily and the motivation is this that if there's crime we can implement the technology because it will help make our situation better because it will allow us to solve crime faster, more effectively, and make life better. And so all of these things come down to the fact that there is an incentive to agree to the technological shift because it will make things better. But there are other downstream consequences that I don't think that we are really wired to wrestle with because they might not be consequences on us directly. They're consequences maybe on our kids or even two generations down the well, road. Let, let's look at, stop right there for a second and think, well, we, the, the motivation for having this technology is to catch criminals. Mm. That's a reflection of our own morality in that we still have um, people who want to kill others. Yeah, why are we making others criminals? Harm others. Yeah, we have criminals. Um, so potentially, um, there's a future where our morality is much higher. We're more spiritually um, uh, enlightened to the point where we don't need to create crime. Or the conditions that led to the crime, poverty, let's say, or addiction, um, those conditions have been taken out. Then, you know, let's say you are operating a, f a camera rec facial recognition program. Maybe you'll say, hey, you know what? We don't need this. Right, right. And it's cost money to operate. You know, we don't need to pay for this. I was going like, to say. We don't have crime. Those, like, uh, we, those why technologies create a lot of jobs, right? Like I know people that I went to school with who couldn't get jobs in the academy. And so they went and worked for, you know, these companies that do this kind of stuff because that's a real market right now. But it's easy to imagine that there's a different market that involves actually creating better children, better citizens, better people, right? Like think about the ways that you could actually put people into a good social environment. You can think of all sorts of activities. Like what is the reason that none of us turned out as criminals? Well, it's probably because of our upbringing. Like I was always in the woods as a kid. I was playing sports. I was doing martial arts. I was doing music, right? I was in all these programs because I was lucky enough to come from you know, a wealthy enough community that had the resources to make those things happen. 
but if everybody stable stable parent stable parenting i think that's probably one of the biggest factors mm. is stable parenting and when you have um single single moms single dads um kids living with grandparents um you know those kids uh are missing something and and you know they get into a gang or you know they have fam they find family values in a gang and the gang's out committing crime like um but is there a way to how do you, create how do you good, address how do you address that how do you could you could you put the same level of economic push instead of into technologies like facial recognition and crime prevention into community structures so so that kids who you can't really control what parents do but could you make like could you make societies for children like I'm thinking of like boy girl scout type things maybe not as militant but situations where you get to get outside you get to socialize you get education from people like one of the coolest things about boy scouts for me was i'd get to go maybe i take a merit badge class with a guy who works in the house of representatives downtown or something right and i learn about the law or i go and study from a real emt and learn first aid you know and you have this opportunity to really be exposed to the productive sides of existence in society and I, I just wonder if there isn't an economy for that, that that would be equally appealing. Like you can imagine spending a lot of money on this stuff. You know, I call that kind of going through the back door entrance, right? The front door, you know, the front door is the wide open door. It's like the easy, the easy, politically accessible thing is like, hey, we've got crime. We need facial recognition software. And this company has a great technology and it's going to help us increase our arrests by 20%, blah, blah, blah. Let's do it. And the mayor or the, you know, signs off on it. Yep. We're, we're going for it. But then there's the back door, which is the, I, I kind of look at it as the narrow, the narrow gate, right? Um, that's the harder one to get through, but the reward is much higher. So like the narrow gate, yeah, is, would be poverty, right? Poverty or um, you know, just broken up families, lack of community, um, cri you know, high crime addiction, right? We need to address that stuff and we need to provide treatments. We need to provide, um, support. We need to provide good diet. We need to provide, um, you know, uh, healthy environments, more, more nature. You know, like whenever you look at a pot an impoverished neighborhood, <clears throat> the first thing I notice, there's no trees. You know, every house has, um, you know, no lawn, no trees. It's a concrete, uh, you know, encapsulated world, um, you know, and being in that environment, is that a, is that a good environment for kids? Um, you know, c compared to being in Boy Scouts, spending time in nature, having, having, um, a connection with, with earth and, and nature, right? I, I mean, um. My, my wife used to work in Oakland and she had kids that are in, you know, kindergarten, first grade who had never left Oakland. They had never crossed the bridge to San Francisco. They had never been to Golden Gate Bridge. They had never done any sightseeing around all. The only world they knew was the concrete world they lived in. And, um, like taking these kids on field trips to go to the Golden Gate Bridge was just can you imagine like eye-opening for these kids and it right? seems like that's a huge market is is i guess my point it's like there's huge development there it's just a matter of whether you want to develop markets to buttress yourself against the things you're afraid of or do you want to build markets that support a better like 
Braden brought this up yesterday. Kind of, it seems kind of cliche, but it's. I think it's really beautiful and really inspirational. Is do you want to orient your decision making towards what is the what love do you have for the beautiful future that you can imagine here, or do you orient yourself towards the fear that you have about what could go wrong if you fuck this up? I just yeah, I love that. These are systems that take twenty years to mature, maybe more. Right. So if you imagine that. You're talking about a program that starts when a baby is born and then matures when the kid graduates college or finishes whatever training program you go through. That's a 20-year investment before you begin to even see the profits from it. And for we, sure. And it's just, there's nothing that can do that except for governments. There's yeah, no well, corporation that can be like, we're going to put money into this, and the only time that we're going to see returns is when this kid graduates, but that kid's not going to graduate and then go back to work in the company that was organized in like field trips for students. They're going to go and they're going to go do something else somewhere else. And so... Well, we're never going to be able to build a government that can do anything closely approximating that as long as it's on the leash of the financial institutions. Like our government is essentially owned by the financial institutions. And so as long as... You know, let's assume that we have a brand new government for a second, because that's like, that's the most interesting thing to me in the whole universe is like, yeah, this is all like messed up and everything, but what comes next? Like what, what does the, a really functional, beautiful government look like that works for people's long-term interests? How about an office of compassion? <laughs> sounds terrifyingly sounds Soviet. <laughs> No, but I mean, I mean, imagine having uh, an office, a government office of compassionate humans who are there to help those in need. Well, we have right? those. We have we have social services. We we have... do, but they're not based on compassion. They're based on laws, and you know, they're based on all these strict requirements. And those the needles constantly moving. I mean, I, I guess the Republicans' new bill on SNAP just lowered lowered some of the caps on SNAP. Um, for food and so like it's not stable stuff and it's at the will of the, of the politicians but like i mean my thought is passion i don't i don't know my thought I, is I if wanted, you take if you take care of then look if you get that fine if you get the middlemen out of the situation who are just concentrate like just sucking wealth out of the people right just sucking it out like constant just sucking all the wealth out i think people are inherently good they're inherently compassionate they inherently want to take care of other people. Like most people, there's always like, you know, Peterson always says there's 5% of the people that are psychopaths. Fine. Like we'll deal with the 5% that are psychopaths, but you, most people by and large are going to behave themselves in the interests of humanity. I really, really see that in the people that I meet. But the people that you meet are not the people who are at the upper echelons. And the upper echelons are probably more than 5% psychopaths because those people get concentrated in positions of power. Well, not just positions of power, but in these financial games where they're allowed to siphon this money off. And if that position in society no longer exists, if there's no longer a way to just make unearned income, then there's no reason for people to be in those positions and psychopaths to concentrate in these but positions. But the psychopath who, who looks at the Vioxx data and is like, no, it's fine is not in a position of unearned income. He's serving investors that are making unearned, unearned income. He's not making a decision that's actually good for anybody. Well, he's making a decision that's good for the investors. But that's the problem with the investor's structure in general. That what I'm seeing here is that we're, we're making all these assessments based on 
um, monetary value, right? So our metric is always money. Well, that's what everybody's driven by because people are terrified. They're all, they're all broke, basically. When you said, imagine a new government, right? To me, that says, hey, we can establish a, a rule of law that's not based on monetary, um, uh, cons- uh, purely monetary. I mean, how um, money's a good metric of like energy flow, right? And, and value, right? And, and um, well, it should be. Right. Because, you know, we you brought up earlier mortgages and, and how our banking system, you know, well, a GDP. better definition for it now is just debt. Like it's really just you're owning other people's debt. That's the fucked up part. Money didn't always used to mean that. Like usually the government prints a coin and the coin represents some goods and that's it or services. And the government is then capable of forgiving those debts periodically. But when you have a financial structure inserted in the middle, that's just siphoning 99 percent of the of the wealth away from the population it's just it can't lead to anything but this like complete dystopian philip k dick nightmare because there's lots of money in the world like this is the thing that it really comes down to it's it's just that money is locked away in swiss bank accounts cayman bank accounts places where it can't be put to use and so it is literally just idle wealth that is then the person who owns it is confronted by the question of, okay, well, I have to make that money make more money because if I just let it sit, it devalues. And so then that money is used to invest in buying up properties or buying up resources or playing the stock market. And so there's almost this parallel world of money that's playing out on the landscape and it doesn't ever filter back into the pockets of people to be able to spend it. And so that's why Hudson's like, look, if you assume that that money is turning in that economy and then you insert money from the government by printing it and give it to the people, then that money is circulated through society and is actually able to be put to use. Except I think that eventually, unless you deal with a financial institution, what's going to happen is that that money just gets put back into the pocket of the corporation and back into the system of unearned income. And so what you end up doing is you'll turn the wheel of the, the the money moving through society, but eventually it goes downstream and downstream is into the bank accounts. And so it's like, we were at the grocery store last night and that guy gave you the, the, the flyer that had all of the different companies that were owned by, uh, Kroger. by Kroger. And it's it was a list of like 12 of them, I think. And now they're also buying up the Safeway chain, which means that you have one monopoly that's running all of these different food companies, and there's no longer a requirement on price uh, competition. And so whereas before, if you had a Safeway in town and you had a Fred in town and they were competing with one another, the prices would drop. But if Fred owns all six of the grocery stores in town, they can jack up the prices as long as you can pay. And if you get money from the government and you can suddenly pay more, then that just goes right back to Fred because Fred's not going to raise the wages because they don't have to because the government is paying people. And I it's not Fred, though. It's Kruger and their corporation. Whatever. It's the like, the, the, you're right. It is right so it's going back into the bankers, essentially, right? Because the, the fact of the matter is most of the investors are people with 401ks and stuff like that. And they're just barely squeaking by. Like they're fighting the inflation of the currency by owning those stocks. That's why they own them. So they're not really, you know, getting it's it's really just totally unnecessary that there's this entire class inserted itself into this mix you know i've really struggled with stocks because 
I've wanted to invest my money and I really struggle with grappling like, hey, do I want to give my money to this corporation that has questionable practices in the name of profit? Do I want to be a part of this machine and um, help propagate all all these wrongs? And, and I, I get stuck because I know, and as I brought up before, there are great communities inside of these corporations. There's let's say there's 95% great people in there, right? Um, that aren't totally nuts, right? And they're, they're doing what they, they're doing what they can, um, uh, in the best interest of themselves and their community. Right. So, um, I think, okay, maybe this is justifiable. Maybe I can, I can, I can do it. But then you hear about Merck or you hear about like, you know, uh, just just the products themselves are so destructive like you know coca-cola right it's like you know i like coca-cola i like i like their beverage i like the taste of it i like to have one once in a while but then i'm like i got this plastic bottle what is okay <laughs> that's what i'm trying to say though is that everybody, everybody's implicit everybody's complicit in this because of the fact that if you don't invest your money in something you're, it's not going to be beat by inflation, essentially. Like even and and like, let's say you get a great savings account, like you were talking about. You're still feeding the banks, is the thing, which are part of this same financial structure that's just siphoning money off, right? So there's no way to get around it. You can't like if you go and hide your money under your bed, that's not going to work out for you. If you buy real estate, well, then you're going to be landlording and perpetuating the same, uh, the the same unearned income scheme that is destroying everything i guess you could buy gold you could buy gold you could buy platinum you can buy rare earth minerals but then it feels like what you're doing is sitting like smog on your hoard of gold and it's just not you want to be able to have a way to take your money and apply it to something good that will multiply it and the problem is is that most good things don't multiply your money that's just, I, I really genuinely believe that because... What about business? I don't know about that. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I, I was wondering about, you know, the idea of a gift economy, which I don't really know all the mechanics of, but also microfinance, you know, there's, I heard about, um, you know, these these uh, banks that do microloans to, to, you know, like third world countries where like 200 bucks is enough to like start a little business. Right. And they just need that $200 loan and there's just nowhere to get access to 200 bucks. But like you could add a lot of value. And what, what I kind of dream of future wise is less um, or, or more, more localized economies. Right. And, and I, and I think this comes down to the fact that we're getting better at making stuff in our garages with 3d printing and um, with all the robotic stuff that we get. Um, so really you just need a kind of some basic parts and, you know, you can manufacture a lot of stuff locally, um, with advanced manufacturing. So I dream of a, a future where everybody in your community has some way of adding value. Maybe they, they're great gardeners and, you know, at the end of this year, they, they can, a bunch of vegetables and, and there's a local market or, you know, local honey makers or, and, and what if we find out that, oh, wait a second, we don't actually need to work as much as we think we do to create value. Maybe creating value is, is a lot less strenuous than we think. And we have more time for leisure. We have more time to raise our kids. Um, and we're just caught in this mill of debt 
where we have to overproduce, 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 and 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 you know, and it, it just like you said, it gets siphoned off. But you know, I think the danger is to look at money as something that's that's evil or bad, or it's really just I think code for value. Um, and you know, as far as the people go, it's it should be value based. Like your salary should be based on what value you bring to um, your 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 industry. Um, however, though, it's been hijacked, yeah, and that's the financial that's the financial system is siphoning off our value that we add to our community. So yeah, it's a lot simpler because he brings up these ancient civilizations that the state issued currency. And it gave them the ab ability to periodically forgive debts on its citizens, right? If there was a bad harvest one year. Actually, he, he said that every time these Sumerian king, maybe he's talking about the ancient Greeks, the, uh, the pre-classic Greeks, and how they would occasionally just forgive the debt. And they had that ability because there wasn't an intermediary. Right now, the well, government borrows its... Stockholders? Yeah, well, we borrow our money. Our, our government borrows its money from this bank, which is made up of private institutions, Right. And so they're just inserted into the mix. And he's like, you don't need to do that. And like the treasury's there to print money. There's no reason to have this external bank. It does nothing but screw everybody. It's just siphoning off all of the wealth to a few billionaires who are at the top, essentially. And there's no reason for it. And there's no way, like our country is buried in debt. Individuals are buried in debt. How much debt per, per capita? Is that like... I don't know. I think the last time I heard it's like $55,000. It's probably up to like 100000 Like uh, $96,000 for every single person living in the United States. So Man, we woman, all, and child. over our life, owe... <laughs> like, people just work to pay off their debts their whole life. And, it, and they never, they'll never get there. Most of We're them. never going to get there. Well, so hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry, that's, uh, that's, the, that's for the national debt. That's not... That's for our national debt, yeah, which is a, a more confusing metric. The average so. household debt is fifty-eight thousand. Okay, not a big difference. No, I, I'm. I, well, so if first, you consider national debt is, and personal, no, the debt. national debt. That's what I was interested in. What is the national debt per capita? So national debt per capita is ninety-six thousand. So, that's like every single one of us has a loan out, like that's due for ninety-five thousand, and as a country, we have to pay back these loans for every single person. I don't think we're ever going to, I mean, is it just always going to be, they'll just keep raising the debt debt limit. And as long as anyways, I'm not an economist. I, I don't know how that stuff works, but it doesn't, it seems like a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> I mean, I, I've like, I've almost never gone back and listened to one of our conversations after we recorded it, but I might go back and listen to that one again, because it was crazy how this dude was breaking it down for us. And, it, what and was it's his name again, Michael Hudson. Michael Hudson, badass economist. Check it out. Yeah, he's lectured at all sorts, you know, in Chicago and Harvard, and I think he's, I think he's got a part-time position in China right now. But it seemed like the the main issue was was that this money is just essentially money by itself can be created by the government. They can print it, they can do that, but you can't if you got to borrow it from private people essentially which is the way this whole structure is set up and it wasn't always this way the the fed is a fairly recent invention i mean it's from what the early 1900s yeah when did they get rid of the gold was that when they got off gold gold standard or was yeah, the fed there I was, before i think that? it was correlated with that i'm not i don't know the history uh, the gold, gold standard ended in 1933 so what why did 
I mean, I feel like creating the Fed, there must have been a good reason for it. I don't, uh, well, well, the stock the market power, crashes. The powers the that stock be, market crashes. The Fed right? was created before the stock market crashes. Uh, the Federal Reserve System oh, started yeah, that in was 1913. The FDIC, sorry. Yes, so, and so the the gold standard ended in thirty three, and the Fed began in thirteen. Well, what do we have to do? You know, what's what's the what's our recourse here? I, mean, I actually made a list of them. Stuff. You, I want to hear you respond um, to this uh, this list that he gave me. It was it's kind of crazy. He was like, first thing you got to do is take all of the private finance out of elections. So that oh, the that's, government that's is a no-brainer. A no-brainer. Lots of benefits. He said that. Uh, complete debt forgiveness on human services like housing, food, uh, yeah, healthcare, <laughs> right? Because a lot of people's debt comes down to those three things, especially housing. And then uh, finally, no usury for non-earning. Uh, sorry, usury is only available in the commercial sector for, uh, but you you don't you tax non-earning services like. Um, renters and extractors and uh, lenders and things like this. This I'm not is, sure I understand this one. What's user? What do you mean by usury? Uh, so that's, that's borrowing that's at interest. interest. It's actually interesting. Like several kingdoms in the old world outlawed usury altogether because they realized that it was a corrupting force. And I think Hudson's like usury is okay if it's competing companies doing it with each other. He's like you just shouldn't be able to do it to people for basic services, right? Wait. So can you go back up though? Um, I haven't finished what, the list too, but yeah. I, I know, but uh, what does he mean by canceling debt on housing? I didn't get to react to that one all the way. Or, yeah. what? I don't I don't think he, that was actually specifically debt that doesn't get canceled. Uh, I think he said on basic human services, like food, healthcare, housing, things like that. So that you can't have debt for that? Oh, it's like uh, education or? also is another well, one. So you have a, a loan period, right? So you take a mortgage and the mortgage is a 30-year mortgage. Yeah. And the expectation is that you will work to pay that debt off. But sometimes people can't. And so they end up underwater on their mortgage. Or they pay for some fraction of time. And then they're basically at a point where they can't afford to pay it anymore. And his point is, he was like, look, during the 2008 crisis, what happened is that there are people that are underwater on mortgages that they probably shouldn't have gotten in the first place, but at least they had housing. And what happened is that when they couldn't pay their loans, the banks kicked them out of their houses and repossessed the houses, but they couldn't sell the houses for the price that they sold them for in the first place. Yeah, yeah bought them for in the first yeah, place. Yeah, that they were sold for in the first place. Gotcha. And wow. the problem is, is that you have the banks not making back their uh, loan and all of these people kicked out. And so it makes, makes far more sense to forgive the debt that the person can't pay. Or and just modify the loan to like a more reasonable term. Exactly. And then they can have a better hope of re recapturing the, you know, the original loan amount. But I think wow. that what ended up happening from what I understand is that all of those foreclosed on houses are now being bought up by pri private equity firms. Like BlackRock is buying a lot of houses. And so the banks actually, if they held onto them for long enough for that to be a place where the global money supply is going, would then be able to sell them at a higher price than they would just by having an auction. Or yeah, something. he's basically like, get the banks the hell out of these basic human needs. Well, now they're doing fractional home ownership, right? I don't know what that is. Well, like you can you can invest in in home ownership. I think Amazon are 
is doing this where Amazon's buying houses, but you know, they have a, they're obligated to only own them for five years. So they're going to buy a house, own it for five years, let it appreciate. Right. And then they're going to sell it. And when they sell it, they're going to, you know, cash out all the profits and pay all the investors. So like five people might go in on buying one house for five years. And so it's a way to create a market, an investment market for housing where it's a lower bar of entry. And it just seems so, it just Meanwhile, it seems the, so funny, right? Money's because being like, siphoned off still. Are you going to be renting a house from Amazon while you own like t- a fraction of like 20 other homes? Like, like, um, it, it just seems weird. Uh, I didn't even make situation. it to the, the, the number one on this list. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Let, let's get back to your list. But I think it's the most interesting one, which is. Wait, can you just do the list again? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is really important. And we need to make sure we understand these pretty well. And there might be more to add to this list. This is just the four things that we talked that about. You wrote down. Okay. Uh, so we had no private finance in elections. This debt forgiveness on basic human services, which we've been talking about. And then the other one is a little trickier to unpack, but it's essentially that usury is restricted to the commercial sector and that you tax non-earning services like renters and extractors and financial so, sorry, Land, that's what I mean. Yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. Sorry, that's what was confusing. Sorry, re- I was like, I, I just, yeah, that's not the right word. The rentier class. Rentier, that's it. The rentier class are the people that own, that own assets. The properties, yeah. That just give them unearned income. So earned income is stuff that is wages. Unearned income is stuff that's passive. So your investments, your properties, your whatevers. Yeah, that's what I had. I just couldn't read my own crappy handwriting. <laughs> but then the most interesting piece which he pointed out about these successful states in the past was that they were headed by a divine king. So before you flip out about that though, because obviously like everybody just quakes in their boots at the idea of like a religious monarchy, but he points out that what, what they weren't really religious figureheads in the sense that we think of dogmatic religion today. They were just supposed to embody this ultimate ideal of harmony with the land with the, among the citizens it was this role of indebtedness to some higher purpose besides just your own egotistical drive and i think that like whatever constitution that we would come up with in this beautiful state of the future would have to be headlined under some mission statement that was aimed at something higher than individual yeah profit well that's that's awesome um and and you know, I'm all, all about the, the one on one to one to one to one change, right? Is you, you look at the last uh, few years here, five years or so, or even 10 years, I guess. Um, but like me too, right? Me too. And is, is an example of the collective conscious, the collective, the collective human, you know, mind of humanity saying, wait a second, um, this isn't okay anymore, you know? Um, this is not, this is not how we want to do business. And a lot of, 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 uh, leaders fell out of good standing with society because of these moral ills, right? So as we, uh, individually sort of change our beliefs and ultimately develop compassion, more compassion for our fellow man, 
um, only then will we start to to really, you know, create that 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 higher belief in our society and our groups and, and have have the foundation support to have a moral leadership right it's also or a some higher... baseline level of like when people have a boot on their neck it's very difficult for them to concern themselves with compassion for their neighbor and so <laughs> yeah. assuming that we'd right, assuming that we'd solved that problem i think that that's what i was saying like you know a few You're minutes dead ago for 30 years like yeah, that's a nice boot on your neck, right? And I know? think that if you let that up, I think pe- don't lose your job. People, or you're not going to be able to keep your house, right? But don't you think people inherently are compassionate if they're not completely stressed out about like absolutely? When I lose my compassion personally, like in an argument or something or whatever, it's because I'm really stressed out about something. You're already at your bottom, right? Okay, so hold on. I, I would say something about that, which is that the United States was the most comfortable that it has ever been in the 50s and 60s. And that was the time of the terrible conflicts over civil rights. And so the idea that compassion somehow just naturally flows from people that are well off doesn't seem to hold based off of how difficult it was no, no, to, no, 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 no. to get desegregation or something like no, that. No, no, it, they did it, though. They were actually able to rally. The thing is, like, terrible atrocities like race hate and race crime was going nuts before that. I mean, we had chattel slavery at some point. I think it takes that level of, of comfort in the civilization for people to stand up for their, you know, black brothers and sisters and really have the energy and to even concern themselves with those problems. I mean, a lot of the freedom fighters were wealthy Jewish kids from upstate who were coming down. I don't yeah. know about a lot, but those were definitely some of the early well, ranks. Think about the, you know, the the first, you know, congressman to accept a meeting with the the leadership, you know, like with MLK or with, you know, like you have to have a certain, you know, everything's incremental. Like, um, yeah, you know, my uh, my parents' generation probably have a little more embedded racism it's just a part of how they were brought up right and it's going to take them their entire lifetime to dismantle some of those ills um and and it's going to take a lifetime of reflection um on understanding hey why do i you know why do i have those feelings about or this fear about this or that or from this other you know, racial group or, you know, really analyzing yourself for like, Hey, you know, I'm walking down the street and I saw somebody and I, I felt fear. So I crossed the street, you know, like a- assessing, why did you have those feelings against that other person? What's, what was rooted in that? Was it our entertainment? You know, you have a whole lifetime to evolve on this stuff. So think about back in the fifties and sixties, back when, you know, the, the white, you know, uh, middle upper class was comfortable um, seeing some of these atrocities happen, they had the ability to step an inch towards equality. And, and, and that inch was just enough for that first congressman or, you know, uh, person to have that meeting with that leader from, from, from the movement and to, to listen and, and willing to entertain listening, um, just listening. Just, just saying, hey, I'll, I will give you a chance. I will listen to you. Um, that took some courage. That probably took that person some courage to allow that to happen for the fear of ridicule, ridicule or 
um, for the fear of losing votes um, in their district or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it, that, that was an incremental step. And it's all movements are just a series of incremental steps between people. So how do you move the needle forward? I think it's always about one person at a time. It's about you influencing your neighbors. Um, you know, it's about you guys with your channel. You have a broader audience. But for me, um, it, it's about connecting with, you know, my family, with my neighbors, with my colleagues, and just planting the seeds of a new way of thinking, right? And over a course of a generation, those seeds um, hopefully get some water poured on them and they flourish. Um, if the seeds that don't that don't really work right, you know, they're not going to get watered and they're going to fall out of of um, of popularity, right? They're they're going to be uh, let to let let go to to die. So um, that's what I always come. That, I guess that's my hope right there. That's my future is like having that belief that it, all we really need to do is well, number one is change ourselves, right? be the change that we seek, right? And then number two is... And I just want to say, man, yeah. like you're one of the coolest people I know for this because Thank you go out in the world and you make people laugh everywhere you go, man. Like you come back from like going to freaking Burger King or something and you've had like this transformative experience with somebody every single time, man. Like we're out at the, at the seeing the band last night and you're just like, this lady is kind of making fun of us or something, but you just completely turn it on its head and I, I I even noticed it, man. If I if I make a conscious effort to just smile at people when I'm going to the grocery store, it's crazy how I think it really does change the world. It's amazing. Like it's hard to imagine if every single person did that. Man, it could be just holding the door open. It could be a smile. Someone's having a bad day, and you just give them a wink or a smile, or you say, "Hey, I really like your shorts," or you know what I mean. That can just snap someone out of like a really low um point in their in their psyche like they just snap wake them back up and and you know reinvigorate them back into this world right it's wildly powerful some guy just handed me a, a you know you go to costco and there's like this train of people trying to get to the carts when you show up yeah and uh, i was going up to get this cart and this guy like grabbed it ahead of me and i was just like my first thought was like oh asshole or whatever yeah yeah but yeah. he handed it to me and i was just like it like completely threw me off my heels. I was yeah. just like, whoa, that's badass. Why don't I ever hand people cards? Like, yeah. you know, Pay it's it infectious. Man, paying it forward at Starbucks. Like, that's a great symptom of a evolving humanity, right? Hey, I'm going to pay it forward today, right? I want to buy the next guy's whatever, right? Um, That's cool, man. That's super cool. Um, What if we just, what if everyone paid everything forward? You know, like, what? what <laughs> hard to imagine. I, I don't know how the math works out, but like, you know, I brought up the idea of a gift economy is like, um, what if we had to spend or we had to give X amount of dollars and we're given a certain amount of dollars every month that we have to give, right? Um, That's what tithing is, right? Yeah. What if we tithe to our friends? Um, I, I mean, and then people are going to send us money in return. Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's kind of amazing. Like before we started the show, I would have never thought that was possible, but that's pretty much how we're making it happen here. We just start, you know, people, we're on a gift economy essentially, right? We're entirely supported by people listening to this show who are just like, yeah, I appreciate what you're doing. And I want to make sure you guys have the ability to do that in the future. Yeah. And uh, I mean, who, who you, where you shop, what you buy, like, um, knowing that, Freddy's is part of the Kroger family now and no, talking to the gentleman in the electronics section of Freddy's and his frustration with not getting enough hours working there. Um, 
And anyhow, um, he brought up the fact that Winco, a competitor, is employee-owned. Um, sort of. I guess 51, 51%, <laughs> no, it's right? 50, it's 49% worker-owned. 49%? Yeah, yeah, the workers owned. don't have any controlling ability. See, that's a bummer. Yeah, but at bullshit. least at least you have some of you, like, y- you have some um, skin in the game, right? That when you work hard and you go above and beyond, the idea is that somehow it comes back to you through your through your ownership. I mean, that's um, that's cool. The fully worker-owned um, companies are incredible. Like we did that yep. little tour after grad school, talking to all these worker-owned businesses, and in its most ideal form, it's a really, really, uh, what's the word? Stable, sustainable ecosystem. And it's, but it has to be absolute is the thing. Like you can't have a single stockholder that's not a worker. Otherwise it very quickly devolves into a typical Yeah, isn't there a bakery in the Bay Area, Arizmendi's? Yep, yep. It's all we employee owned. There's an amazing robotics firm up in Wisconsin that we visited. I mean, just incredible. They do all of the engineering. So they have a room where the engineers are. It's right next to where the assemblers, the machinists are, and then the assemblers are in this big aircraft hangar, and they're all intermeshing all day. And they've like, they've been incredible. They weathered the all of the economic downturns. They were the only company that sailed through those things when things were going overseas, and they just kept it going. It's it's pretty badass. But I, I think most people don't know about it. It's very difficult to start a firm that way because you have to have some capital, and you can't borrow it. You know, you can't have in, you can't sell shares to borrow your capital investments, so it's tricky to get big scale projects going. But there's a few of them. The, the Mondragon Corporation, you know about them? In Spain, in the ba- in the Basque Country, there's this huge. I think it's one of the biggest corporations in Spain, and they've it's completely worker owned. They've got work. The town's got worker owned banks, got worker owned, you know, mechanics. Pl- everything is worker owned, and. uh it's it's really liberated those people. Us is uh, deeply investigating something over here in the corner. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how deeply Winco is actually hundred is employee owned because and it's still unclear. I'm trying to figure it out. But before that, I was looking at the fractional ownership thing that Amazon is doing that you were talking about. Oh, really? And it is crazy. So what it is, is it's a retail investment platform that they've built that you can invest $100, $1,000 into a rental property that, you know, a thousand other people are putting that same amount of money into. And then you get passive income off of that rental property. So it's a huge corporation that's bought up homes. And now the way that they're financing them is that they're financing them through retail investments so what you're doing is you're perpetuating this like vacation rental uh, rental property existence. But as somebody who can't afford your own house, you're investing in somebody else continuing to rent. And it's just still chock full of renters who are going into crazy debt and it's just perpetuating. I mean, this. rent doesn't necessarily put you into debt. No, but all the other things in your life too. Even if you're paying your hard-earned wages immediately to rent, then you're still paying, going into debt for other services like healthcare. But you might not be. I mean, it, it, that's definitely a risk, but I don't think that, like, I don't think it's fair to say that everybody who's a renter is in massive amounts of debt. Well, technically, they're in debt because they're renting; like, they owe money at the end of the month. I, I think the debt has to be something that's carried. Yeah, I mean, like, is food debt? 
when I if I have to buy food every month, am I in debt to food or if you put it on a credit card for sure? But few people put rent on a credit card. I'm just saying that like there's there's difference between payments and rents and debts. Debts are something that you literally you don't Amazon have enough money. Is Amazon owning the land that they're doing this with, or are they? No, they're buying the land, and so you're getting a fractional investment on land that is purchased. You own that piece of land as long as you remain part of the investment. And you are banks don't... involved in this? That's my question. I guess is I don't. Uh, I is, don't think Amazon probably has is, a financial no, arm I, doing it. These are the the way that this works is that there's a house that they want to buy, and they are waiting until they collect enough people who can buy the property. Do they mortgage it from a bank, though? I don't think so, because they collect the money from the people that is the cost of the house. And so then all of the payments and fees you get as dividends from that are profits that are generated from that by being rented out. But Amazon takes some share of that. Most of it. Most of it. And then they distribute to their investors, right? Yes. So, But there's no... Ba- I mean, like, I agree with you that it's... I'm, I'm saying that it's still a problematic thing because... It's perpetuating the whole like renter class, but I'm just, I'm confused about your use of debt in this case. Because the person who's renting that has enough money in the bank from their paychecks to pay rent isn't in debt. That's by, definitionally, it's not debt. um, Nasha, is that true that in five years they they sell the property? Uh, it's it. Some mature in five years, some mature in ten years. Each one has basically a little chart. Oh, okay, where so once it s- matures, they sell it. Yeah, because they're they're trying to time the market. So they buy the house, the market grows, and then when they sell the house, then you get the larger dividend off of the sale. And in the meantime, you get the dividend off of rent and fees. If it's a vacation rental, property management takes like twenty five percent. Amazon takes. It's and it's not Amazon. So it's a Jeff Bezos-backed company, but it's not associated with Amazon. I mean, this Hudson was definitely advocating for the idea that the state owns the land, first of all, because he's like, there's no reason for these houses to cost as much as they do. There's no reason people can't own homes. If the state owns the lands, then they auction the lands off at some reasonable price that's not driven by these this mortgage program. And therefore, people actually owe maybe some fraction of their paycheck to pay for the land that they're they've been auctioned that they bought in an auction but it's not at an interest rate right because they're paying it back to the government who owned it in the first place what about competition though i mean maybe like everyone wants to be uh, on that's the, the auction side. that's the auction idea right so there okay, is the still definitely off- there's a gradient for sure like not everybody can live in santa monica but yeah it doesn't have to be this outrageously exorbitant scheme where you basically are paying for the rest of your life 25% of your paycheck to a bank that's siphoning that money and concentrating it in the hands of like a person somewhere. Uh, by the way, the Kroger Albertsons Safeway merger hasn't happened yet. It's, it's still it's about, to. it's about to and there's a bunch of I mean everybody recognizes that it's a monopoly that's about to happen and so there's lots of people that are trying to advocate to stop it. They're going to have to go to court. It's probably another couple years away, but they're definitely trying to do it. They've already printed the bags. What's the other? They haven't. Yeah. They haven't. They weren't on no, the No, not yet. yet. What, what's the other competitor to Kroger? It was Al- Albertsons. And so Albertsons owns Safeway. No, no but I mean, out, there's got to be another. Um, I mean, there's Whole Foods, right? That's a it's Amazon. It's not really a competitor, though. The people who shop at Kroger are like d- different True demographics. That. Like, there is but not a Whole no Foods other... for 200 miles here. Yeah. Like, that's the depth to it. The closest one's in Bend. There's. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Like, no. Well, maybe Eugene. But you that's about 200 miles. Didn't we have some points in our history where the monopolies were shaken up really strongly in the early 20th century? 
Yeah, but it was around the time of FDR, and it was it was a time of a lot of civil action on behalf of the people against these companies. And I think that in the intervening years, they have set up systems to make sure that that sort of control never happens again quite so easily. Time for it, a really, it, ha- it is time for a refresh. I just think that I'm going to keep saying it until I'm blue in the face. If we're going to have a refresh, we better have a damn good idea of what comes next. Otherwise, it could be a lot worse, right? Because there's some really gnarly, strong people out there that would do the same thing the bankers are doing, but for themselves, right? You can imagine a, a real tyranny coming in the aftermath of this clearly unstable situation that we have going right now. You know, I think it's going to be a big impetus for change, Sh- Shiloh, is uh, disclosure. Ah. UFOs. <laughs> And this has been something that's been on my radar for for ever since um, the David Grush testimonies. And now I found out today he's going to have a public hearing uh, with Congress. No video, but they are going to broadcast, I guess, um, a hearing um, to Congress. So Why no video? That's weird. I don't know. Maybe they got classified images that they don't want to share with us. But the... You know, since December of 2022, you know, Congress passed a law protecting all these whistleblowers who signed NDAs and basically is saying, hey, this law basically voids any NDAs you signed about these types of projects, right? So people are lining up and and the more I read about it, the more I hear that whistleblowers are coming forward to disclose um, basically the shadow the shadow government projects, all those, all those projects that are being funded by our taxpayer dollars, um, that Congress doesn't know about that the president might not even know about. Um, there are programs that are siphoning off our taxpayer dollars that are outside the purview of our lawmakers and our executive. Um, that's, I think by definition, a shadowy government or a shadowy enterprise, right? Um, and the fact that there might be technology, there might be ETs, there might be a whole a whole presence out there. When we have disclosure about this stuff, um, especially if there's ET life, uh, which I believe there is, um, if the if humanity is faced with this reality that the, we are a part of a galactic um, community, I think that's going to have a pretty big impact on how we see our world, how we see our actions, how we see what we're doing um if it's possible that we we might know a lot more about science than we publicly know like are these these entities might have access to technology that could change humanity um you know like a zero point energy it sounds like it's out of it's impossible how about it's just a functional constitution they're like all right here here, guys here's how it works yeah but like you know Every little drip, every little drip has its possibilities. Like if we had a better technology, what if we had a technology that could help us clean up pollution? You know, like what if we have some, some, um, some new, some new gadgets, um, new technology. I mean, if if these, if we have human rep, um, what do we call these, uh, human rep, rep, replicate vehicles or HRVs or I can't think of the acronym. Um, or repro- alien reproduction be- vehicles, ARVs. So some claim that we've reverse engineered um, these technology and we have, we have technology that's 
out of this world technology, literally out of this world technology, we have access to, we've reverse engineered. Maybe we don't understand the phys physics of it, um, but it exists, right? What are the possibilities? If we can disclose all this technology and all this new scientific um, technological knowledge to the public, right? Think about all those engineers out there and scientists who have had these inklings, these beliefs, this, this, you know, there's this humdrum of ideas and going on in their, in their mind, but they just can't put their finger on it. And now we get permission. We get permission to understand that it is real, that it is possible. It is possible to do intergalactic travel, right? Like that's going to change how we think it's going to change. And, and, you know, people have said that, um, even when we do have a mass disclosure type event, there's still going to be people, be people who don't believe. There's still going to be people who are deniers and are going to say, no way this is true. It's all a hoax. It's all conspiracy. Even if aliens come in the middle of a soccer match, right? And, and land like, and, and, and make an announcement, there's still going to be people who think that it was a setup, that it was fake, that it's not true. Right. Well, well I think cares? they got to see the technology come to their lives. Yeah. I mean, like finding truth is like how true, like, what do we need? What, do, what's the, what's the, uh, threshold for truth? And I think that varies by person, right? So there's, um, you know, but considering that if there is an, a, a, a mass disclosure event, which this has been predicted by many different sources that I'm familiar with, like, um, you know, that's going to make a big change. I think that's the takeaway. And that's going to, that's going to open up a whole new way of thinking about how we govern ourselves, how we consume products, how we, you know, what we eat. I mean, I, it's, I think it's going to impact everything. And um, so that's an exciting, that, to me, that's an exciting proposition here uh, or a exciting possibility of a future, right? Is, is this disclosure event. And that will give us the, the permission to, to make big change, I think. And what's interesting right. is that I don't think it matters if it's aliens or military technology, because at the end of the day, if there is something to be disclosed, then it will become apparent. Because the, thing, the way that things pass into reality is that they are, they become a phenomenon that everyone can see. And right now, the weirdest thing about the UAP stuff is the fact that there's a group of people that have seen them, and there's a group of people that haven't. And so the minute that you have a technology that is somewhere where people can go and see it and verify it for themselves, then you have the ability to start moving forward and actually iterating it and figuring out how to apply it. And if that's the end result of disclosure, then fine. I don't, I think that the narrative around alien or domestic yeah, is kind of like. Absolutely. I, I don't think it matters. You know, we, people are seeing stuff in the skies that they've never, that that's not explainable by conventional aircraft. Right. Um, and it's stuff flying around. Let's say it is all human made, right? The fact of the matter is we still don't know who's making it. We don't know how it works. Um, as a public, we don't know that, that this technology officially exists. Um, but again, if it does, the way these craft fly and appear and disappear and shoot off and can travel thousands of miles per hour in an instant tells me there's technology out there that could revolutionize how we live. And frankly, if you have anti-gravity, if you have gravity machines, um, as an engineer who builds railroads and highways and all this infrastructure, do we need this infrastructure? 
Do we need a society that's all connected by roads? If I can just jump in my little hovercraft or I can just fly um, and they're silent and, you know, like, wh- why do I need all this road, right? I can restore roads back to nature and I can say, you know what, nature, you can have that back. You can have that for, for some meadow. You can have that back for a forest, like, right? right? Well, and the first, uh, the... The who approves transportation stuff? There's like some federal commission. NTSB. No, there's all kinds of different organizations that deal with transportation. Local agencies, which are chartered to manage count, like um, it can be city transportation, it can be county transportation, it could be inner. You know, there can be a conglomerations of cities working together to pr- provide public transportation. I was thinking and of the state FAA. and federal is far. I was thinking far, of the well. FAA. So the FAA has just authorized testing of the first flying car. Yeah. And mm, so the future is ma- the future is coming. And I think that you're absolutely right about this idea that if we can change the way that we do stuff, then we can start to remove the pressures that we've been putting on the earth for so long. And it seems to me that that's the only answer. We have to dematerialize our civilization so that the impacts that we have are progressively less and less. And that's circular economies. That's new forms of transportation. That's new forms of energy. That's new forms of of financial markets. And all of these things are progressively developing and the question is how do we get them to develop in a way that aligns with a better future for humans rather than just more of the same crap and i think that that's the greatest challenge it's yeah, not, like when i think of flying cars i'm like okay a few billionaires are gonna have flying cars yeah right? but a few billionaires had you know access to airplanes i guess that's not te- technically true but, no i think it, it has to be all these things have to be fixed simultaneously or in parallel right like you you can't have just a system where the same siphoning is going on, right? You need to take the boot off of people's necks who are in debt. You need to take the boot off the environment, off of, and the environment's such a crazy word, but off of, off of nature, right? We need a healthy ecosystem. We need healthy plants and animals. We need healthy food. We need healthy water. And we need like health, mental health where we're not just, people aren't just, you know, face down in the trenches. I mean, people are killing themselves at, unheard of rates right now it's a really depressing environment this is this is not a healthy mental situation spiritual situation in what way are you, are you is that related to the drugs i think like oh, drug we didn't deaths, even talk about drugs but i think like addiction the, deaths it is right? it is but suicides are up i mean it's really it's hard to imagine being a kid these days too like facing this narrative of of humans being kind of a plague on the earth and you you don't really have much prospects i mean probably not going to own a ki- a home if you're a kid that's not really a dream like good luck thinking about having kids right it's a depressing landscape i mean you probably you have kids i don't have kids but when i face like my students i feel a lot of these i feel a lot of this depression where they're just facing this future that seems unpromising and seems heavy it seems heavy yeah and well frankly that's what gets people's attention is the fear the fear of change and all fact, you know, you turn on the news, you read the, you read the headlines, you know, whatever you get in there. And of course, um, the most fearful stuff is like, is the stuff that you click on and you want to know about. And, and I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm a little more, bit more optimistic. I, I feel like we have time. 
Um, and I, I don't say that because I'm lazy and I, I'm like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Or I'll just like, keep kicking the can down the road. Um, but I'm, I'm confident, or I guess I have faith in, in the fact that just these incremental one person to one person advances in our like enlight personal enlightenment enlightenment is going to be enough um because we exist on all layers of 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 our of our society i mean from um you, you know we exist in all these different tiers and if at every tier we improve ourselves right we're going to find solutions we're going to find a new way we're going to make things better um and not to panic. We don't I mean, have we like have that time. narrative. That, yeah. Like people really need ideologies to rally around. And like you have, you have a dude. You have a beautiful mindset. But in some sense, like I don't mean to put you down in any way, but like you're privileged yeah. to this incredibly pristine upbringing. And and I'm not sure that like bad upbringings excuse people for bad behavior. But the the optimism that you have is like not codified in any central way. That the Amer like when you think of like I would love to go to another country. And be like, yeah, I'm an American. And they're like, when they think of American, they think of what you're talking about. <laughs> that would be fucking amazing. Yeah. Well, I, you're right. I am, but you know, it's it's interesting because you see when there's calamities, like a you know, um, like for instance that that train derailed, and there's all this gas coming out, and in the community, the community rallied. They got together. Um, number one, it was terrible what was happening. On this, the air was terrible. Um, but they came together in some way and it was, it, they came together through a really negative, um, situation. Likewise with any kind of environmental disaster, right? These are impetus or these are catalysts for us to come together and, and connect with our neighbors and help each other. Right. And, and so unfortunately, um, you need those catalysts. You talk about the 5% psychopath, you know, sociopaths that run the world. Well, like that 5%, um, they might make decisions uh, that that are bad and people get very upset about. And that might be an impetus for change right there. It's like you kind of, you, you know, you just got to roll with, roll with it. And, and, um, but, you know, as I guess the, what's the alternative to this, right? I'm saying it's person to person to person to person, right? That's the way you affect change. Let's say you go for a specific cause. Right. What does that look like? I think right? it looks. How can one person, how can you single-handedly go make some big change? Right. I don't know if I can, but I think that understanding what a new, like a, a, what a new constitution would look like, what a state that would protect us from these insidious corruptions would look like is part of the issue. Because I don't think any one person drafts a constitution and people adopt it. It's got to be a movement, right? It's got to be a movement that's rooted in an ideology, which is, congruent with the future that we want to have like people are motivated by ideologies they need something to believe in right and so if there was that level of concerted belief in what this future could look like i think it wouldn't be that hard to draft such a thing and make it happen what if you changed every board member on every fortune 500 company and you change every single leader to just have five percent more compassion just five percent. They get fired by their stock shareholders. You think so? For sure. Yeah, they're just fired by the numbers, one hundred percent of the time. Okay. So there's so like there's systematic issues, right? But 
Right, because compassion yeah. is something that is contingent. Compassion can only be contingent on there not being something that is more important than that. Because if you are in a marriage or in a friendship, compassion is really important because the marriage, the friendship, the relationship depends on that compassion. But if you are somebody who is a compassionate person, but you are sitting at the helm of a company that has shareholders, your compassion goes only as far as the bottom line rises. Yeah, I'm well, sure they're really nice like, to their dog and everything, you know? You guys assume that having a compassionate business would not be profitable. So I question, what's that based on? Well, that's based on the sum total of experience that I've had in the world. So if you it's take, kind of a Ouija pay, board, dude. Yeah, if you pay your employees more, you pay them a living wage, maybe your quality goes up. Well, I mean, like, look at Walmart. Yeah. So Walmart could pay their employees more, but mm -hmm. the profits would drop. Yep. So it has to come out of somebody's pockets because there's an X number of people that shop at Walmart. And you could make the case that, okay, if we pay our employees more and we became more like Costco, maybe more people would shop with us because they didn't have the bad taste or whatever. But that would require then competing with Costco which already has its devoted market share. It already has the mm -hmm. people that go there and prefer it. And so there's not, you'd have to spend a lot of money on marketing. You'd have to put a lot of effort into transitioning that. And that's why you can't do it because you'd probably have a couple of bad years. And those couple Walmart's of bad kind years of bad are enough to, to replace you. Yeah, <laughs> Walmart's owned by like a single family too. So it's conceivably they could actually make decisions, but most of these corporations are just owned by shareholders. Mm. And so the share, like the mandate of the CEO fundamentally is to make money for the shareholders. Uh, they, Walmart is owned by shareholders. Oh, I thought it was owned by the Waltons. I mean, the Waltons founded it, but it's a publicly traded company. Gotcha. So yeah, interesting. Yep. So maybe we're not there yet. I just, because I we're still monetary, we're so focused on monetary gain. And because we have this in stakeholder and, you know, boot on the neck, sorry, dude, boot on the neck. Shareholders are holding holding things down um yeah so th th it, it's it that's not going to work unless you have an enlightened ownership class the whole class of stock stockholders says hey you know what i'm just happy that walmart's running well I, what if Wal and, what if they were the what if they were the workers who owned it well that's different too see like i guess that there is more to it than you just I, I, maybe maybe I'm illustrating my own point in, in another kind of way in that if you just tweak one knob, it's not enough. No, no, you're right. All the knobs have to be tweaked. thousand percent. Right? Um, and that that doesn't, that's can't be achieved by just having a single, singular-minded focus. I mean, I that maybe that's not true. Um, but I feel like it's more effective. It's just less visible. It's, it's slower, right? Me too was a huge movement, right? That was a big, focused, very directional movement, right? And it had a huge impact on leadership. Leadership, a lot of leaders fell out of favor as they were exposed in the Me Too movement, right? A lot of our heroes were exposed as, as like naughty. They got put on the naughty list and that shifted rather quickly. So there is... There are those major events that are like a catalyst, right? Um, and then once that happens, it's like the seeds go out and start infecting beyond uh, the initial 
you know, it was really focused on Hollywood, right? But then it started ex going into workplaces and then work workplace training, right? I had to get training on Me Too um, after it came out. Um, and there was a lot of reinvigoration of, of, of that stuff and a hyper focus on it. And um, so there, there is that. I guess maybe you need an event, um, but it's followed by that one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one change. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think we just everything needs trucking. to happen in parallel. All, all these solution sets have to be adopted in parallel. I, I really wonder what's going to happen in the big, the next big stock market crash, right? Um, well, there was there was one kind of recently. I mean, the stocks dropped an incredible amount last year. Was it last year? I don't know. It doesn't seem to be impacting jobs, though. Um, well, the bigger problem know, is people don't want to work these jobs. That seemed that seemed there's there's a huge dearth of hiring right because people can't find people to work these crummy jobs at these low salaries well because the profits are being like you you were saying about you was it that the burger king or something you were talking yeah. to people <laughs> and the management wasn't putting enough people yeah this shift. burger king uh, this is a funny story go to the burger king and it's like almost four o'clock and i i'm able to order in the dining room and right after four o'clock Another gentleman walks in, wants to order, and the manager says, sorry, sir, I can't serve you right now. I'm understaffed, and I'm about to come off my shift. If you want to get food, you need to go through the drive-thru. And he got very upset about that. Um, but as it happened, um, after kind of all the drama went away, and I was finishing up my meal, I was chatting with the, the manager, and I was like, yo, this is really weird. How come you guys aren't understaffed? And... And she was like, well, the owner, the, the owner doesn't want to staff out these shifts enough. Right. And meanwhile, uh, the manager, her, her friend was, um, who was not working, who had the day off, he got hired at the same Burger King for five hours a week. And I was just thinking, what the hell is going on at this Burger King where they're understaffing it day in and day out and just working their employees to death. Right. And then when they do hire somebody, they only give them five freaking hours. Like, how is that? It, it you know, and, and the poor kid who only had five hours, he's like, yeah, well, I do DoorDash. So he's like, I got the money coming. You know, it's, I'm getting enough. Is that just know? bad management? But, or that doesn't seem like it's uh, well, profitable. Yeah, it just, and, and you know, it, it takes a lot of money and effort to like hire somebody, right? Yeah. It's not like it's like, you can just go hire people every day. It's, it's effort. It's like, it takes time. It costs money to buy them uniforms and get them trained, right? Um, just hire somebody, how you get five hours and yeah, we're going to keep the, the dining room understaffed and, um, piss off our, it sounds like an absentee, <laughs> piss off our customers, sounds right? like an absentee owner, like somebody who's just sitting oh, there totally. collecting passive income, not really taking the much franchisee. Interest. Yeah. The franchisee of this Burger King was definitely not following protocol. And I think the, some of the employees were like, yeah, if this was a corporately owned Burger King, this would not be allowed. Hmm. Like they would say, nope. You if if you don't have enough people behind the counter, you gotta you gotta lock the dining room, like lock it out. Like it's probably not even safe for them to be understaffed. Like what if there's, you know, a fire or an emergency, you know, in the anyways. So super sketchy, all in the name of profit, right? And that's passive the, profit in that case. Passive profit, absentee franchisee owner. Yeah. I think that's what HUD was on about is there's just a lot of these like worms in between the cracks of all of these different 
wealth generating instruments that we have. These there's just worms who have gotten in and they're literally taking everything. It's just gutted. And the result is not that people are starving, it's that they're just depressed. They don't have hope for the future. They don't have hope that their only hope is that they can join the gang and somehow get a position of the same sort of yeah. unearned income. I mean, I just imagine if that Burger King was owned by a more compassionate and more more just aware, connected to his employees mindset, he would see that number one, customer service is really shitty at this at this Burger King because the late the the girl, rightfully so, was just like, Hey sir, I can't serve you. And then they end up getting in a freaking shouting match. But who would in, make in a the better time that you know what's funny? In the time that they were shouting at each other, she could have rang them up for whatever you ordered and they could have been done with it. But it was just all around a, a really silly situation. And it's because the franchisee who owns who owns that Burger King is not willing to put enough staff on the floor. And if he, you know, if he has he, no idea. If he cared. He, has no he idea. doesn't care. He probably gets his monthly uh, finance report. Okay, yeah, we're we're profiting. We're in a we're profiting and but what better person what yeah. better owner than the people who are actually running the place oh absolutely that would be way more beneficial um well i mean now, the path towards that is just people buying out the stocks of the companies they worked for that's what winco did when they transitioned to employee ownership is that the employees came together they bought the stocks and then they became the majority owners of the company are they and the majority they, they're the majority. I just, I can't get to the bottom of if they're a hundred percent or not. Oh, okay. I thought that when I looked, when we first moved to Portland, I saw that it was like 49%. It's, it's unclear. There's, it's like, it's hidden behind a bunch of layers. The people who work there do seem to have nice things to say about it. But the, the, the point is, is that you can actually influence the direction of your company if you band together and you all buy the shares and then you say, we're going to decide how this is going to go. And that's, that's it, to me, it seems like a real possible motion towards changing corporations that already exist. Because when we talk about Mondragon or something, they're a manufacturing company. They make washing machines, fridges, steel plates, cars. They have that, right? So they're basically, they, they do all kinds of stuff. But when they started, they were in the manufacturing sector. And that was easier to do back in the day because prof, because costs were less. You could get people together and buy whatever machinery was left over after the war in order to be able to build out the factory. And now it's much harder. So if you have a business like this came across when we were talking to Isthmus, which is the one that's in Wisconsin, they were like, when we started this 30 years ago, the cost of initial capital was much lower than it is now relative to people's wealth. And so if you can't start a company from scratch, you cannot start an oil company from zero. But... Every single employee of that oil company, if they got together and organized, and I'm not even saying a union, but if they just came together as, as a strategic team that year after year after year was buying all of these shares, then they could end up taking over majority control of the board. You but could also imagine in the perfect state of the future that we've been imagining that that would be subsidized to the workers to be able to do that. It would, it would be a relatively simple thing, but it would have to be in comp you're in competition with people like BlackRock. Which now I think, you are, right? Yeah. Of course, this is in the ideal future where this is BlackRock doesn't have the supreme power that it has right now. Yeah. But I think that I think it's been a good conversation. I think we can probably wrap it here and try to solve the ills of the world next time. <laughs>
Any any final words of wisdom, Mr. Dugley? Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been a hell of a week, guys. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for it's coming. It's been a out fantastic here. week. I only got to my top one about Oregon, which is right turn right turn lanes, but uh I guess we'll save that for my next visit. <laughs> um how many do you have on your top list? I don't know. Usually people but, don't start with the top one. Usually it's a countdown. <laughs> I guess it's a countdown. Yeah. Right turn lanes. Awesome. Um, yeah. Or, or, Oregonians are very friendly people. But they don't want to be um, friends. But they're, what's that? <laughs> they don't want to be friends. But they don't want to be friends. They're very friendly, <laughs> so but they don't want to be friends. <laughs> so true. Well, and, I mean, they've um, all been here since the Oregon Trail and they're just like, yeah, we got everything covered. We don't need you in our crew. Yeah, and it's beautiful out here. Definitely. Definitely. Um, it's beautiful country. Country land. So well, I hope you, I hope you will visit more often. I think the though. top thing about Oregon is that they have you guys. <laughs> here. There, that's, that's how we end this. That's it. Excellent. It's a little, little, a little flattery. Never heard. <laughs>